our passage today is found in Galatians 4, 21 uh, through 5, 1. It's going to be preached to us by Kevin Larson, who is the lead pastor here at Chorus. So if you're able, would you please stand with me and follow along as I read God's word? This is Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. It says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is God's word. I'm going to pray for Kevin before we begin. Dear Father, thank you that you are not simple like us, God, but you are intricate and you are wise. And thank you that you call us to freedom and your word says that you rejoice over your bride, God. And I just pray that you would help Kevin to um, deliver truth today as he preaches on your word. And I pray that you would help us to receive. And um, I just pray that this gathering that we participate in here would fuel us to go and share the gospel throughout the week with people in our lives, God. Um, and I just thank you for the opportunity to gather. And I uh, just ask for us to be submissive to the ways that you are leading us. Thank you for being patient with us, God. Um, thank you for forgiving us for our sins. In your spirit, we pray. Amen. Thanks, Kitty, and welcome once again. Welcome, everybody at home. I know we'll have a few more of those um, this week, understandably. But I don't know about you, but over the last year or so, um, this question, um, one that maybe you can relate to, keeps popping into my head, and it's, what is wrong with people today? <laughs> now, I know I'm a rebel and I'm a fool, and you probably thought about that about me. I know, I know, you know Bobby probably has. I know Amy certainly has. But I think we can all um, turn on the news. Uh, we can scroll through social media, and we can get to that question really fast. Something is just not right today. Now, I've spent probably too much time thinking about this, and I think I may understand at least a, 
part of the problem. You could be the judge. To get there, I want to take you back to my junior high locker room. Great memories there. Of, of getting picked on. Um, I wasn't the cool kid, in case you wondered, or it may surprise you, I doubt it. But I, I remember one guy decided he would throw my hairbrush in the toilet. I remember getting torn down verbally, getting pushed into lockers. What were these boys trying to accomplish, though? Why were they being so mean? I think they were trying to prove themselves to the guys around them, and they were trying to establish their place where they stood in that locker room. I really think that's what we're seeing playing out today, whether it's people screaming at public hearings or tearing into people at Facebook. They're trying to prove themselves. They're trying to establish their place. A few weeks back, I preached a three-part kind of post-COVID series. Maybe you were there. On the last week, I, I talked about how the American church's mission seems to be getting lost and compromised as professing believers really on both sides of the aisle are, are giving themselves over not to Jesus and his mission, but to other kings and kingdoms. I think it's definitely happening and it's incredibly sad. Um, I know we've, it's, we're guilty of that as well at times, but here's a question. How are you right with that king? How do you enter into that kingdom and stay there? I think you have to prove yourself. You have to demonstrate that you belong and keep doing that again and again and again. You try to believe, you try to practice, you try to share all the right things. And to show that you're for real, you bully those who don't. So you idolize something, you demonize something else. But here's another thing I think we're tempted to do that I think we're seeing more and more. You show that you really belong by becoming more and more extreme. Why is that? Well, you prove yourself in part by comparing yourselves to your, your enemies, right? But that only works. That only satisfies for so long to, prove, to really prove you're legit. To truly stand out from the crowd, you even have to outdo your friends. And that's why I think the extremes on both the left and the right keep getting pushed further and further. Suddenly, you're not a true conservative if you're not anti-vaccine or anti-mask. You're not a legit liberal if you're not a complete socialist, if you don't have a Che Guevara poster on your wall. We can get more and more outlandish, more and more mean, and that's how you earn your place. It's how you get a hearing, and yeah, if you didn't know this, it's how you make a buck, too. And maybe it's in part why our social media feeds look like the worst of junior high locker rooms today. You can put your head through a wall. Well, I can jump off the top bleacher. You stole all his clothes. Well, I can put his head in the toilet. I see your birth in the face, and I raise you an atomic wedge. Welcome to America on Twitter. Well, we've been walking slowly through the book of Galatians. Here Paul is writing to this church that he's planted and he loves, and he's begging them not to get sucked into this type of thing. In that church were false teachers, and we call them Judaizers today. And they were saying to those believers, if you want to be legit Christians, you have to first be real Jews. You have to do all these right things that you see in your Bibles, and you have to rail on those who don't with us. And Paul is saying, no, brothers, no sisters, Christ has come. Salvation is by grace, and we do not have to prove ourselves 
anymore. And he begs and he pleads those Galatians to ignore those Judaizers over there and to not return to the slavery of that life. Of getting your identity from what you do and how you think you compare to those around you. Now, if you didn't notice, whenever Katie was reading this, this is an extremely confusing passage. But I think you'll find that if we can understand the, the basic picture that Paul is painting here, that the point is actually fairly simple. But before we get there, here's the first thing I want you to hear from Galatians 4, 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. First, if we want to honor the Lord, we have to learn to read His Word well. We have to learn to read it well. For starters, let me ask you this. How many of you were raised on the veggie tales? Or at least know what I'm talking about. Okay, there's a few. Hopefully you won't hate me here in a minute. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you know, good for you. But I've lately been listening to the podcast and the creator, Phil Vischer, watching some of his videos way before he was trying to shout out and shout at and wake up American adults. He was creating videos for them as kids, and there were videos with vegetables as the main characters, right? And they were all the rage with Christian families and youth groups back in the day. But I remember, you may not remember this, but I remember the controversy that erupted when they ended up playing on Saturday morning. And all of the biblical imagery was removed. That raised some ire from the Christian world. But what's interesting, though, is that the shows, forgive me here, but they really were not that Christian in the first place. In fact, sometime later in the interview, Vischer said this about his show. He said, I looked back at the previous 10 years and realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And that was a pretty serious conviction. You could say, hey kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or, hey kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. It's morality. Well, first of all, what a picture of humility and repentance. That's a model for us. But now, I think older Phil might want to talk to younger Phil and say, hey bud, you want to teach kids the Bible? That's great, but you might understand what it teaches first. And that's kind of what the Apostle Paul here is saying to this Galatian church in front of those false teachers. He asked, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do not listen to the law. Now, this isn't as confusing as it may sound, but the word law there in the Bible can be used in at least a couple of senses. First of all, it can refer to the commands given to Moses that we can try to use wrongly to impress God. And second, sometimes in the Bible, the word law can refer to all the books of the Bible together. And I know this is weird, but I think Paul is using it in two senses here. He's saying, guys, if we're going to keep all those rules, are you, if you're going to try to keep all those rules, guys, if you're going to try to teach other people to do it, are you really sure that's what the whole book really says? And of course, it's not, right? They, they, they weren't understanding that, and we so often aren't either. And we can read the Bible just like the Veggie Tales as a book of rules to keep, as a bunch of heroes to aspire to be. That's not a good understanding of God's Word. 
It's not Christianity at all. It's just as he says, morality. The point is to see that we fall so short in doing all that God asks. And that we're in need of a hero to fill that gap. And we cannot, will not ever earn our way to God. Now, to remind the church of this, he recounts to them a Bible story. One found in the book of Genesis. There's some in chapter 16 and 17, some more over in 21, where you have this man who's been, he's been promised by God to one day have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, but he doesn't have an heir, right? And his wife just happens to be really old, and so is he. So what does he do? Well, Abraham does what most of us would do. He tries to find a way to take matters into his own hands. And he sleeps with one of his slaves, this woman named Hagar. And together they have this son, Ishmael. Well, of course, not too long later, his wife Sarah, against all odds, gets pregnant and births a son also. That's Isaac. And the Apostle Paul says, remember that story, guys? Verses 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So here's what he's saying. One son came from Abraham trying to do this thing in his own strength. It came about by sin. That's what he means when he uses the word flesh. His sinful flesh. The other came about through God's promise. It came by faith, or at least it was supposed to. And Paul says, do you guys, do you guys remember that story? He's telling them that that story summarizes so much of the Bible. He says, why would we try to live our lives in the flesh where we do things? And then we're proud of them. Where, where we don't need God and we just use God to make us feel good. And then we look down on others who don't measure up to us. If we read the Bible and that's where we end up, we're not reading it well at all. We have to watch out for this, cars. It's so easy for us to read God's Word closely every day and completely miss the point. And the point is this. God is good. We're not. Everything we receive is completely undeserved. It's all of grace. Karas. It's all by promise. So if we want to honor God, first we have to learn to read His Word well. Now... While we're talking about reading our Bibles well, I need to talk about where Paul goes next when he talks about allegory. I'm going to take a series of sort of asides during this message, and this is the first allegory. What is that? Well, it's when you take different aspects of the story, the people, the places, the things, whatever, and you try to assign the deeper spiritual meaning. You try to get kind of behind the surface to this code of sorts. Now, my daughter has recently really been into Marvel movies, and she started asking me the other day a bunch of questions about Endgame, the, the Avengers movie. And I told her, I said, you need to talk to Pastor Rob, because he really liked that movie a lot. And he may have gotten really emotional during it. <laughs> now, whether or not it was intended by the producers, Rob had difficulty not seeing it as this allegory of sorts 
of our faith. And if you listen to him and you all rush it in and ask him, it's, it's pretty compelling. Throughout church history, people have read their Bibles, even some spiritual giants, and they've seen an abundance of allegories. They've kind of seen them everywhere. The parable of the prodigal son is an example. Where people have tried to say in that story that the pigs that the prodigal son is eating beside, they represent demons. The ring given to the son represents baptism. The party represents the Lord's Supper. The calf in the parable pictures Jesus. Now, if you really want to dig into this further, just go Google the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you'll see what church fathers like Augustine and Origen had to say. It'll, it'll, it'll blow you away. But it's not a helpful way to, to read our Bibles, right? And it so often leads us astray when we're not taking things at face value and we're trying to find this, this code. However, Paul says here that he speaks allegorically. He says that clearly. But as we hear those words, we have to remember a couple of things. First, this is not just Paul here. I don't think he walked around doing this generally. This is the Bible. These are Holy Spirit-inspired words. God can do that. But second, I want you to think of this a little bit more like maybe what Rob does with Endgame. You know, Tony Stark, and sorry if you don't know the film, I don't think this is a spoiler, but... Tony Stark, Iron Man, you know, giving up his life, it really reminds me of Jesus. The defeat of Thanos reminds me of Christ's triumph over Satan. You see redemption at Thor and at Hawkeye, and you see this beautiful picture of redemption throughout when people are brought back from the, the snap. Paul, I think, is just using a story from the Old Testament to guide the Galatians to truth. And this is the type of story that comes to mind for Paul because, yeah, he's the Apostle Paul. He's a Bible scholar. If we want to honor the Lord, we have to learn to read His Word well. And we generally won't see many allegories unless, of course, the Bible tells us it's one. And that's what we see here. Well, with that, uh, let's move to the second thing I want you to see. Second, if we hear what His Word says will clearly see the path of life. What's Paul trying to do by bringing up this Old Testament story? Paul is painting a picture, and he's pushing a point of how we need to live if we really want to live. So what's he saying in verses 24 through 26? I think it's something like this. You know Hagar, that slave woman that Abraham slept with? When you know, he decided to take matters into his own hands, she reminds me of the slavery that comes from trying to do things your way in the sinful flesh. And Abraham here, he makes me think of the law that God gave at Mount Sinai, this, this covenant with Moses, how people tried and tried to keep all the rules, to earn their way to God in their own strength, and how it leads to nothing but bondage and misery. People are still trying to do that today, Paul is saying. In Jerusalem and her worshipers, there, you know, with those false teachers in Galatia. He says there's a better way. There's a heavenly Jerusalem. That's Sarah. She's our mother if we walk in faith and if we walk in freedom in that new covenant. So what, I think what Paul is doing here is he's reminding them and he's reminding us where true freedom is found. And it's when we trust in God's grace. 
When we turn away from our own efforts and open up our empty hands and trust God to fill them. So trying to measure up when the standard is so far beyond us means we'll never keep up, and that is what you call slavery. It's trying to make bricks without straw. It's miserable because it's impossible. But there's another thing that Paul is doing here. He's reminding us of what's impossible with us is possible with the Lord. He tells them what God might be up to. In verse 27, he quotes these words from long ago from Isaiah the prophet. Way back, when God's people are in Babylon, they're exiled for their sin. They're without hope. And Isaiah there takes also this story from Abraham and Sarah, and he makes a point. And he says, hey guys, you may feel really hopeless right now, but you know, you're kind of like Sarah. She was barren. She had no hope of life at all. But just like Sarah, despite your sin, God's going to do something amazing. So start rejoicing now. The Apostle Paul here is applying those words to those struggling Christians in Galatia. He's encouraging those Gentile believers who are being hassled by those Judaizers. And he wants them to just trust that God is at work among them. That good things are happening, that good things are coming, and we need to hear this as well. I've been saying this a lot, but I'm encouraged by what God's going to do during this hard season. We see this in us so much of the time, but I think we're also surrounded by super religious types who are saying all kinds of crazy things. People identifying with Christ publicly. Saying all kinds of things that don't honor Him. God wants us to hear these words and keep going. To believe that he is at work among us and trust him for big things. Maybe like in Galatia, it won't be the repentance of the religious, but maybe the salvation of the irreligious, but God's not finished. Paul says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. If we hear what his word says, we'll see clearly the path to life. We'll know where to find freedom, but we also won't lose hope. Because when it feels like there's nothing we could possibly do, that's exactly when God tends to work. But here's kind of a side number two. This passage is a bit confusing, but to our modern ears, it's also fairly offensive. Because we're talking about slavery on one hand, and on the other, we're talking about what seems like abuse. So, Hagar is a slave to Abraham and Sarah, and then, yeah, Abraham takes her into the bedroom. Now, apparently, it was an accepted practice in that day, much like it was accepted back in the day down south. But that doesn't mean it was acceptable to God, right? And Paul... Recounting it here doesn't mean he's endorsed it either. So telling a story about Thanos killing half the world doesn't mean that you endorse murder, right? But neither of these things, slavery, sexual abuse, fit with God's design for humanity or sexuality. They go against the grain of what the Bible teaches, is creation and redemption. So we have to stand against their existence today, and we have to seek to undo their effects 
no matter what it costs. Let me move to the last thing I want you to hear from this passage. Third, if we grasp our Father's love, we'll know we can never turn away. So in the last section of this passage, in verse 28 of chapter 4 through verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul seems to really conclude his argument and hit them with his main point. That's because the doctrine of God's grace is hard for us to accept as humans. It's almost like we're allergic to it. And God here is trying to fortify the Galatians and all of us against the alternative, which is, again, this performance mentality that makes us miserable. And he says basically three things here. He says, first, you're his children, so step into it. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul, again, doesn't pull any punches. So, again, you have the Galatians here, Gentile believers who come to Christ, and you have the Judaizers, these false teachers that are trying to take them back to the law. Right? Those Judaizers, they no doubt thought, well, we're the true children of Abraham. Those Gentiles, those immature Christians, those ones that don't keep the law, they're Hagar's kids. It's likely that they use that metaphor. And they also, again, taught that the law was the pathway to freedom. But Paul flips the tables on them, and he says the exact opposite. He said, you who believe in Christ, who are done trying to do things your own way, and trying to keep the law to earn your way to God, you are the children of promise. He says basically the same thing in verse 31. Step into a church. Enjoy it. Revel in it. That you're a child by His grace. And don't go back to those chains. This is your identity if you're in Christ. You don't have to go to great lengths to construct another. He says, second, trouble will come. Stay strong, stay, stay strong in it. Trouble will come. Stay strong in it. Look at verses 29 and 30. So Paul brings up another detail of the story where you see in Genesis 21.9, Ishmael laughing at, mocking Isaac. Probably this idea that he was the true heir. And Paul says, just in those days, so are they now. It's happening now. We, too, with these Christians addressed so long ago, will be attacked. And it doesn't always just come from out there in the world. It often sometimes comes from within the church. And we can't let it phase us because people don't naturally like grace and they don't like seeing it in others. In verse 30, Paul reminds us of some other details in Genesis 17 and 21. So if you don't remember the story, if you haven't heard it, Abraham feels bad and wants Ishmael to be the heir. And he tells that to God. And Sarah objects and says, no, kick the boy and his mom out of here. And the Lord tells Abraham to do what she says, while, of course, he makes promises to Hagar and Ishmael, and he doesn't abandon them. Again, this is the first that the Judaizers would have used to ostracize Gentiles, or those who wouldn't buy into their legalism. But Paul again turns it on them, and he makes another point to the Galatians. And he says, it's them that don't belong, not us. 
We're the heirs, the children of the promise, and not them. And that's still the case for us today. If we believe the religious, the legalists, those fixated on appearances, those who don't get the gospel, they'll still misunderstand us, they'll still come at us, and we can't let it phase us. Because God's word says if they persist, their future is bleak, but ours is breathtaking. Paul says, third, freedom is yours, stand firm in it. So here, verse 1 of chapter 5 again. Really, really Paul's main point. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now this goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But how are we children of God? Through the Father's work of election, but also through Christ's work of redemption. He saved us by His blood. That was the payment. And He made the payment not so that we would stay in slavery, but walk in freedom. So we have been freed. So how about we act like it? Back in Christ's days, people would go to jail. They'd end up as slaves in order to pay off debts. So imagine that's you. A friend shows up with some funds to get you out of that situation and you say, nah, I'm good. I'm fine. And you tell them to leave. We, we wouldn't think of that. We would, we would run out in joy, but that's so often what we don't do. We, we run back to Egypt because it's what we know. We run back to rule keeping because it's comfortable. It's something we understand. But that dishonors Christ and what he came to do. It doesn't Receive and rejoice in his payment for us. You may know what a yoke is. Paul uses that word. You may not. It hung over the necks of oxen and kept them together, moving in the same direction as they worked in the field. And it was usually very big, made of wood, and extremely heavy. So Paul's saying, picture the law. This performance mentality on our shoulders, shoulders pulling us down by its weight. And that's what trying to prove ourselves to God, to others, even ourselves, does. It pulls us down. It weighs us down. And the Spirit says, do not submit to that any longer. You're free. So this is our identity, church. You're not defined by your activity, by your productivity anymore, but in who Christ is and what he has done. Here are these words from author and teacher Steve Brown. He says, the good news is that Christ frees us from the need to obnoxiously focus on our goodness, our commitment, and our correctness. Religion has made us obsessive, almost beyond endurance. Jesus invited us to a dance, and we turned it into a march of soldiers, always checking in to see if we're doing it right, and are instead in line with other soldiers. We know a dance would be more fun. But we believe we must go through hell to get to heaven, so we keep marching. Are you ready to dance? I'm a really bad dancer. I am. I've got great rhythm, but I'm not a good dancer. And not, not on the dance floor, but a lot of times when it comes to living out what God has done for us in Christ. The pull back to where that life, the marching life is so strong. And there's so many people around us shouting that want to push us back toward it. But the Lord tells us in community to stand and not give in 
And as they used to say back in my day, to bust a move. For what he's done for us in Christ. If we grasp our Father's love, we'll know we can never turn away. Here's my last little aside on liberty. So I've done one on allegory, slavery, liberty. Freedom, he talks about freedom here. Freedom isn't what people talk about today. Today it's all about self-expression. Doing what you want. Defining yourself. But that's not true freedom. That's, that's slavery. I love these words from rapper, theologian, extraordinaire, Jackie Hill Perry. She writes, When salvation has taken place in the life of someone under the sovereign hand of God, they are set free from the penalty of sin and its power. In a body without the spirit, sin is an unshakable king, under whose dominion no man can flee. The entire body with its members, affections, and mind all willfully submit themselves to sin's rule. But when the Spirit of God takes back the body that He created for Himself, He sets it free from the pathetic master that once held it captive and releases it into the marvelous light of its Savior. It is then able to not only want God, but it is actually able to obey God. And isn't that what freedom is supposed to be? The ability to not do as I please, but the power to do what is pleasing. Freedom isn't, doing, and freedom isn't found in doing what we want, but doing what He wants. That's where we're truly ourselves, as we are created to be. But we have kind of a different angle here in Galatians, because here we see something even more dangerous. Trying to do what we think God wants in our own strength, in a way to try to earn His favor. And that too is the path away from freedom. That's what Paul keeps driving home in Galatians. So I remember parents back in the day, if you ever questioned Veggie Tales, they'd be like, well, at least they're not watching SpongeBob or, God forbid, South Park, right? But, but that misses the point because religion that emphasizes our works leads to slavery and not liberty, that can be just as bad, maybe even worse, because it's so subtle and so deceptive. I want to close with some more thoughts on application. It's common, of course, when you talk about this kind of thing, to apply it in a, a spiritual way to the disciplines and practices of the church. So, are you reading your Bible? Good. Are you praying? Great. But if you're looking to any of those things to make you right with God, it doesn't work. It really destroys those things. You know, recently I, was, I realized I was using our field guide for worship that you can find in your church center app that I created. And I was using it in the exact way I told you all not to use it. I was mindlessly checking off my readings for each day, and I had to kind of step back and regroup and repent because that doesn't do anything, and it really takes this book about freedom and turns it into slavery. There's also a way to apply it that I think feels more secular, at least it feels that way. You, 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 you go about trying to prove yourself by how much you work or how much money you make or how well you take care of your body. And if you feel like you're doing well, you're kind of proud about it. If you have a bad week, you're really down about it. But that's actually really deeply spiritual because, again, you, you have this king that you're serving. Maybe money, maybe power, maybe sex. You have this vision of a good life, of a kingdom that you want to be a part of, and you're doing whatever you can to try to prove that you deserve a place there that you measure up. You're trying to do whatever you can to not miss out on those things. That's really your hell. 
You give your life to a false god, an idol, to that view of what life should be, what you ultimately want. That's kind of your heaven. But, but doing that, and doing that, and doing that, that's bondage. Here's some other ways that I think we drift into living by works, not grace. When we try to take and edit the perfect Instagram pic to display this perfect image of, of our lives, and then we watch and we tally all the likes, and then we even wonder why some friends haven't noticed. I know some of you have been there. I have. I was speaking to a dear sister this week who has explained the struggles that, that women face today, the pressures of having this appearance that measures up, that guys like, that looks good enough for Instagram. You can't keep up. It's bondage. Think about criticism. If we're not living by grace, it's devastating to us because our worth is what people think about us. We're, we're seeking so hard after their approval. We're pointing to our scorecard. We want them to see that it looks great, but if they question that, we can't handle it and we become defensive. Think about our apologies even. It's, it's, we need to ask forgiveness way more in our culture. We do. But sometimes we keep apologizing, keep apologizing, and we, we go to people that don't even know anything is wrong, and we're doing that because we want them to validate that we're okay. Right? Because we're performing, and, and we need that desperately. School is about to kick off, and with that comes this pressure to achieve. And I, and I know that. Well, I literally had my mother talk to me in kindergarten about being the valedictorian of my senior class. Right? She kind of named my opponent and said, go get it, son. And it kind of, I was kind of a slave to it the whole way through. Then I got to seminary, and I was, I was studying about freedom in Christ, and I just had this mentality, i got to get an A+. Like, if I forget everything after the test, it's cool, but i got to get an A+. It's, it's bondage. But doing things in a way that glorifies God is one thing, but making our studies this false God is another. Trying to prove ourselves through our academics, it's a tough load to carry. And let me just say, so much of the time we're trying to prove ourselves to our parents, and parents who don't get graced too well, and they're really trying to live through you to prove themselves to their friends. Let me tell you, it's so easy also to slip into in ministry. We're in the day of the celebrity pastor in the mega church. It's easy to just slide into thinking about attendance all the time. It's especially hard when you're kind of coming out of COVID and your vacation season and that kind of thing. You have a good week if your sermon seems to go well, or guests that you saw show up, they, they come back. It's easy to look at others and kind of compare yourself to how they're doing. And yeah, it can be tempting to find other people that you can criticize, but that's slavery. We don't have to live this way. We don't have to live this way. We can lean into our identity in Christ and be secure in Him. I'm not a big fan of country music, sorry, but as a guitar player, I cannot not be in awe when I hear Ben Skill play. And he was asked one time who his, his favorite, his kind of his icon in country music was, and he said this. He said, I have to go with Merle Haggard. The way that he wrote songs spoke to me differently than anybody ever has. And I would attribute some of that to the fact that he went to prison. 
He knew what it felt like to not be perfect, and it made him tell the truth. You see, grace changes everything, and it drives out, if we'll let it, the insecurity that really is fueling all the insanity that we're seeing today. You have nothing to prove. You have no one to impress. You can tell the truth about yourself. And it also changes the way you interact with others because you can then tell the truth to those around you. Faith leads to love. If we have Christ's approval, we don't have to compare ourselves to others. We don't have to hurl insults at those around us. That understanding of grace will transform the way we walk around this town and the way we update our statuses on social media. Scott Sauls likes to put it, when the grace of Jesus sinks in, we will be among the least offended and the least offensive people in the world. And not only that, we'll reach out, we'll even seek out people who are different from us. Those that we might see offensive. Those by whom we've been offended. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of grace. And yeah, it's hard. Yeah, we're falling short every day. But that's why we have the Holy Spirit. That's the point of this passage. To lean into Him and His strength. And He wants to do that for His glory. Let's pray. God, I know that um, here in America we're so sheltered and blessed so much of the time, but I I know you understand as well that this has just been a hard, frustrating time. And we're thankful, though, though Lord, in all of this, even on our worst days, that in Christ you see us as holy and righteous and, and good that you love us and that you want to take us broken sinners you want to use us for your glory. God, I, I pray that you would just be making more and more the idea of your grace, um, not just the name of our church, not just something that we can kind of grasp in our heads, but just something that's really real, something that we feel deeply and something that just spills over. That's just incredible. So in the, in the church of Jesus, we have two sacraments or ordinances that Jesus gave. Baptism is, is the one he gave as the entry right into the church. And you do it once. And the Lord's Supper is continuing right. And we do it here every week because we think we reminder. And this is a reminder of, of God's grace. If you didn't grab a cup, you don't have to grab one really quick. But this is a reminder of his, his grace. When we go into the waters of baptism, we're reminded that he washes us clean, that we're united to his death and his resurrection. Whenever we take up the, the cup and the bread, we're reminded of his body being broken for us and his blood being spilled out. So both of those sacraments are reminders that Hey, you need somebody to do something for you. You're not enough. You can never measure up. And so that's not meant to like push us down. And again, I, I say from time to time, this isn't a, a
funeral for Jesus. Like this is a this is celebration that he's he's risen, that we can be risen in him. That this is a reminder, this is a an opportunity for thanksgiving for what we have in Christ. And the main thing is, is we just don't have to keep walking around and trying to impress people and measure up anymore. He has lived lived a perfect life. He has died for our many imperfections, most of which we have no idea about. And that's awesome. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread with his disciples and he broke it. 